Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs Vancouver. Today we're just having a chat. Yeah, today we're joined by KC. How's it going, KC? Hello. Uh, not too bad. How about you guys? We're doing good. We're, uh, yeah, surviving. <laughs> That's always good. KC, where, where might people know you from? Um, so I write uh, comics. Um, I was part of Cloudscape's um, Life Finds a Way anthology um i've also got an upcoming short story with uh black hole entertainment uh which drops april 8th i believe perfect that will be i think shortly after this comes out actually yeah just a couple of days or about a week actually after this comes out or before the timing yeah um so we um, we were talking before about some of the things you you'd like to talk about and some of the things your players told you were your strong suit. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you do how you go about creating narrative description for your players? Yeah. Um, so narrative description, I kind of approach in the same way I would if I was writing a story. Um, I like to make things as visual as possible for players while still not being um, obtuse uh, or uh, verbose, sorry, uh, in in my descriptions. Um, yeah, so I just do my best to make things uh, as fleshed out and visual for them as I can. So something I'm, I'm curious about, because this is something that I've been trying to do uh especially when I'm either doing theater of the mind or like sometimes when uh, I'm running a session and they're, for example, like exploring uh, an ancient tomb or something. Um, sometimes I have the time to like prepare a map beforehand, like a really nice one that's got details that I've sketched in and stuff like that so that they can tell when they enter a room that, Oh, there's a, there's a table here and a statue over here. Like I'm able to, put in some of those details or at least I'm not saying that I'm a great artist, but at least I can label things and like kind of describe things that way by just kind of maybe as they walk into the room, point out a couple of things. But when I'm doing theater of the mind or I haven't had as much time to prepare, trying to do the, the narrative description so that when they, when they walk into a room, they understand what it looks like. What is their, relationship to this room like where are they positioned like if they entered in on on one side what is the you know what is the first thing they see when they walk into the room or or that kind of stuff like do you have any i don't want to really say tips or tricks but just like things that you generally try to do every time to to 
create those descriptions in your players' heads? Um, I do, actually. Uh, sort of, um, like you said, I kind of like to put myself in the player's shoes. Like, if I was, you know, player A walking into this room, um, what is the first thing, like, right across from me um, and kind of going through a visual scan of the room. So I sort of do a bit of a, like a checklist kind of thing uh, when I, um, when I'm creating the, the detail of a room of what I want included and what I sort of want to draw their eye to. Okay. So Casey, I'm wondering, cause you're, you're also a writer and uh, neither Sean or, or I are really writers. We write some of our own games, I guess, but um, are there any resources you use or any like good books you've read that have helped you like write narrative description? Um, true. Uh, where to start? Um, there's a lot actually. Um, I've read, um, recently, uh, the Unhewn Throne trilogy. Um, the way he approaches narrative description has really sort of shaped a little bit how I um, how I form my narrative. Um, reading a lot of published adventures as well has kind of given me a sense of what I what I personally like to see and what I, I don't like to see because um, I've read a lot of uh, from third edition onward, that kind of uh, published adventure. So something that I'm wondering about is like, I think a lot of DMs, uh, when they're, when they're first starting out, they can be pretty nervous about like describing a room or, you know, trying to get this kind of narrative narrative description going for, uh, for their players as they're exploring whatever it is that they're exploring. But something that I've found is that for myself, the narrative description for places and locations is, is a skill that I've gotten at least more comfortable with. I don't know if I've gotten better at it, but for people and the creatures that they encounter that's where i feel like i'm still not as comfortable as i as i could be so how do you when you're describing like a new npc or a creature that they're about to battle what kinds of things do you do to describe like a person um well uh i will say google is probably my best friend in that respect I sort of like if I'm um, they're coming up against like a roper or like an owl bear, I'll just Google up an image and sort of pull some of the things that first draw my attention so I can describe, you know, an owl bear to them without having to say, oh, yeah, and it's an owl bear. Um, same sort of thing with uh, NPCs and whatnot. I do a lot of just scrolling through Pinterest, uh, like fantasy art of uh, tavern owners, you know, barmaids, knights, uh, traveling merchants, etc. And um, if I land on one that sort of strikes my interest, I've got this huge list of just NPC descriptions to draw from. So whenever the players are like, oh, and we go talk to this character, I just sort of like, okay, and I kind of look at the list and I'm like, I'm going to use this person, cross them off. And then 
there's my description. So you said something there uh, at the beginning that I think is really smart, which is when you Google images of a monster and you you decide to describe kind of the first thing that draws your eyes to them. I think that's that's really neat. That's not something I'd thought of because it it does kind of match the the moment of an adventure or something seeing seeing a monster or something for the first time, specifically drawn to you know the like the Roper's kind of great red eye or its tentacles or its mouth or whatever like i think that's i think that's a really good tip that i'm going to uh steal and use yeah i'm glad to hear that um it's something that i uh have picked up in my years of sort of playing and uh dming and also just writing in general sort of trying to be as what's the word as concise as possible with my descriptions. So I've done the the Google thing where I go onto Google or Pinterest and and find images of characters and that I want to use for NPCs, but it's usually because I'm just going to show it to the players, especially if I'm playing on like Roll20. Um, when it comes to using those as a as a description of like using an image to describe the character, I think that's that's a really good idea um, because I find that for myself, I find it easier to think of character traits or personality quirks or something like that when I've got a picture to look at where, you know, like if I'm looking at a picture of like a dwarf bartender who looks very dour and grim, you know, but maybe my I catch something in like the eyes of this character and it's like, oh, maybe he's got a playful side, even though most of the time he's just grumpy. And being able to use an image to power that description I'm giving to the players, that's a really good idea. I really like that. Yeah, um, I I do sort of the same thing where like their personality, I might have like a a skeleton of that in my mind, but like you said, the picture sort of really does help build on to that. So, Casey, you also were talking earlier, uh, or when we talked earlier, about how uh, you describe things during combat. So um, outside of, obviously, what we are just talking about, seeing a monster or encountering a creature, like, what kind of narrative description do you use in a fight? Um, so... For my narrative description, um, I mean, it, it kind of depends on what the party is doing, but I've sort of taken to um, like when a, a player is injured, so to speak, or say, you know, they get hit with something. I might not exactly say that has um, like cut a wound in them or something uh i've taken to sort of adding stamina as part of their their health um which has kind of helped flesh out my description a little bit that way that way you know if they happen to get hit a bunch of times in battle they don't end a battle just covered in wounds and whatnot they're they're physically drained maybe they got a couple wounds um you know but healing up will have to be like uh, like recovering bruised bones or things like that. That's one of the things that I've seen online quite a bit when people talk about trying to make combat more exciting. Because, I mean, at its core, the combat in D&D, unless you really enjoy 
rolling dice and seeing big numbers, then the combat can get kind of monotonous. Like it's it's just the same thing. Like, okay, I'm going to roll some dice and then you're going to roll some dice and then the next person's going to roll some dice and then it comes back to me. But those descriptions are, I think, one of the more powerful things in D&D, making that combat actually feel... Uh, you know, using those descriptions to make it actually feel like your character's in danger. Or if this is a like a, a bar fight, you can use it to add some levity. Or, you know, it's a fight that your character knows that they can win. So you're able to instill that sense of like, this is, you know, some... The the kid of the, the villain that we defeated in the last campaign, and he's he really mad at me, and but he like, he's punching me and it has no effect... Like you can use those descriptions to invest, get your players more invested in what's going on rather than just because it is the problem that I've had in in some of the games that I've run where players start to check out in combat. And it's because the combat was just, okay. you roll and then I tell you if you hit or not and then I'm going to roll and then you tell me if uh, if it hit you or not. And starting to add those descriptions made it so that the players who were starting to check out started to pay more attention and get more involved yeah um like that's something i when i took up dming that was something that i kind of wanted to pay attention to because as a player i mean like you said combat is not always my favorite um you know a, a big boss battle can be really exciting um but a group of goblins or kobolds um you know, that's just another run of the mill thing. And I, I have noticed myself as well, sort of checking out a little bit in combat. So when I took over DMing, I was kind of like in my head, okay, how can I keep people maybe a little bit more invested? Um, and I have stolen a couple things from um, Matt Mercer from Critical Role. I mean, whenever an, one of my players like finishes an enemy, I will always ask them like, how do you wanna how do you wanna do this? So thank you, Matt, for that. And I think that involving the players in the description during combat is is a really good trick because at least for myself, it it starts to get a little boring trying to describe every single hit. But if you tell the players like, yeah, you hit, like tell me what that looks like, it doesn't have to be every single time. Like sometimes, you know the the ranger fires an arrow and yeah it hits and it sticks in them and they take some damage but sometimes you know you can like toss the description over to the player and be like so what does that look like you just you got a a critical hit what does that look like yeah exactly especially for like a crit where it's like all right here you go balls in your court what do you want this to how do you want this to to affect combat um and I DM by rule of cool. So like, you know, if someone says, oh, okay, um, I want this critical hit. I want the arrow to to hit him in the eye. And I was like, okay, well, I, I really like that. I think that's great. You got a crit, so that works. And I might give uh, that enemy like disadvantage on the next, um, you know, for the rest of combat because like, well, he's missing an eye. Ah, rule of cool. The very best of rules. Yes, it's my favorite of rules. Yeah, very much so. So I want to, before we move on to the next topic, which I think we're at a good transition point for, I just want to add for a description, 
uh, the powerful thing about description, and it's this is like one of my weaknesses as a DM. It's a thing I need to work on. Is that like a good description in a fight can make even like a hit, like a missed hit against a character feel exciting? Um, because like AC is like th- this nebulous concept, and like you know sometimes a hit isn't really a hit, but it would affect your you know. Um, oh my god, I'm blanking on the word. Uh, the thing with AC is that sometimes, uh, you know, a missed hit doesn't necessarily actually not hit the person. It doesn't hurt them or it doesn't, you know, affect them kind of emotionally or psychically. So, like, you could describe a missed hit as, like, you know, they bring their sword to you and it just kind of bounces off your armor or something like that. A, a description that still feels like things still feel dangerous and the players still feel invested. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I totally agree. AC is this very sort of nebulous thing that like, yes, it's a number. Yes, it constitutes what, you know, what it takes to hit you. But that hit or miss could be, could take so many different things like, okay, well, you've got a shield. All right. So you, you managed to block this, um, you know, this hit, uh, because, it was like one off or something. Um, and if it's like maybe four off, then it's like, okay, well you managed to like weave out of the way of the, of the sword, you know, strike. Um, so it, it's, it's something that I, I like I said, I, I do my best to keep on top of keeping combat interesting. Cause as a player, I know that's usually the first time I bring up Twitter or something like that. Cause it's like, okay, it's not my turn. I don't need to, pay too much attention. I'm, so, glad, I'm glad someone else admits to doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my, my biggest uh, like sins as a player is that sometimes I just like zone out for a bit during a fight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, think it I happens think to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so part of letting players describe, you know, how they avoid an attack or how they did, really well with that critical hit is is making sure that they have the freedom to they understand that they've got the freedom to describe how their character acts in in various situations and i think one of the most more well not most one of the more contentious things i've i see online is just like how much freedom to give players with regards to like the story that you're all telling at the table because sometimes a dm will get a group of people together to play a campaign where they've got a very clear idea of how this story is going to unfold uh and i like i don't think it's good or bad but i will say that i have been guilty of that of like trying to steer the players in a certain direction because i've got an idea of you know who the big bad of this campaign is and i understand and like i've seen people talk about how they have campaigns where it is pretty much entirely up to the players and the dm uses what the players do with their almost complete freedom to figure out as they go who is the bad guy in this campaign what is the the problem the players are trying to solve and how can i maybe make that worse so that they have to do more work to to fix it um so how how do you deal with giving your players freedom at the table to do what it is that they are actually there to to do what they find most fun yeah. Um, so player freedom and player choice is kind of a big thing for me. Um, honestly, like you, uh, Sean, I've been guilty of not giving my players 
too much choice and being like, no, this is the big bad. This is what's, you know, set to happen. And I learned probably a little too late that my players did not exactly enjoy such a regimented experience. So I've kind of taken a step back now in my approach where like I've got sort of ideas like in the campaign I run now pretty much most we do a try to do it every week but you know schedules and stuff um I have an idea over like who the overarching villain is but who knows if that's who the villain will be in 10 sessions or so um kind of just going with the flow of the players uh i like them to feel like their choices matter and that they're just as much if not more a part of this story than i am because i'm just the the person who tells them if they can do what they're trying to do and Something that just occurred to me that I think it'll be good for me and it might be good advice for other people is that if you started a campaign with an idea that it would be this grand epic adventure with this big bad that the players are all going to level up until they're ready to face them and go and defeat this this evil whatever. Um, and they come in and three sessions later, all they want to do is, you know, help this old man deal with bandits on his farm because they really fell in love with this old man, then you can shift the campaign so that it's more about what the players want to do and then just invent a different adventuring party that goes and takes care of this big problem. And like, there's all sorts of things that you can do to just, you know, if the players don't want to do what you want to do, then find a way that like it gets solved in the background, maybe not as well as the players would have done or uh, the, the people who solve it start to cause other problems like this adventuring party that went and actually dealt with the big bad are now, I don't know, starting to use their fame for bad things for, for stealing from the little people and, and saying like, you can't complain. I'm a big famous person. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I I very much subscribe to that. Like the world does continue on in the background. This is sort of the adventure we're going on is an aspect of the world. And if that gets you involved in what I initially thought the big bad would be great. But like you said, if you end up falling in love with the little old man and want to help him clear his farm of bandits, also great. Yeah, and I think um, and I, I can't remember which episode this was on. I think it was early on. Somebody gave us the advice that, you know, sometimes the villain just has to come to the players and you just have to figure out a way to make that work within what the players are doing, right? So if the players have fallen in love with this old man farmer and they're helping him out, um, well, maybe it turns out his farm is directly in the way of the villain's plan or something like that. Like you can adjust to what you're already doing. Yeah, exactly. Or the the bandits are being bankrolled by the the big bad evil guy. And yeah, they find that out. Now they've got a reason to go and deal with him. Um, Ooh, or my yeah. personal favorite spin on that: the bandits have been displaced because of the big bad evil guy, and they are also just desperate people doing things. Yeah, I like that one as well. Yeah, that that kind of tricky moral gray area is 
I don't know if I have the skill to pull that one off. <laughs> it is much easier than you think. The 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 other key thing, like for because I've done this, this is the thing I did in one of my very first like sessions ever. Um, you know, had standard adventurers run into bandits. Um, and they, you know, they were novice adventurers. They hadn't killed anybody ever before, so they tried to capture all the bandits and they succeeded. Uh, but the whole thing was, you know, some of them were terrible. Some of them were just huge assholes and like were super unpleasant. Some of them were like, look, I just like this was the only thing I could do after my farm flooded. I like I would love to do something else, but like this is where I am. And, you know, so they arrest them, bring them to the authorities. And, you know, later on they met one of them and he had joined the adventuring academy they were in because he had gotten that opportunity. So, like, if you do something like that, I think it's good for the players and for you to, you know, assuming they survive. Because, like, the, this is all a moot point if they don't survive, right? If your yeah. players are the type of person who who will just, like, fight and kill the bandits, which is fine. Um it doesn't matter, right? Because you're not going to get their backstory. You're not going to hear their, you know, hear what they've been going through. But, you know, if you have this thing where you set them up as like, they're actually kind of a victim of a tragedy as well, you know, have them come back, you know, in a better position. Yeah, I definitely agree. And that's awesome that the one of the bandits got to make a, a return and sort of had become an adventurer like them. Um, yeah, and... Like you said, if your if your players are a little murder hoboy, um, that's fine. Uh, but that's sort of something you can read within your first couple sessions and adjust the game to them. And I think this segues nicely into into world building because, like, what you're talking about of you know this bandit is only a bandit because of of circumstances. Those circumstances are under your control, and you can try to maybe tie those into the the larger campaign that you you're hoping to run so i'm curious what you've done in the past when you've done world building because i mean for my first campaign i i dove in and did way too much world building as i've i've learned from doing this podcast Mm -hmm. i went in and built an entire world with hundreds of years of backstory when i really should have just started with uh, you know, maybe a single kingdom if I wanted to be really big. But uh, what what have you found works for you when you're when you're doing world building for the campaigns that you run? Um. So for me, uh, sort of on the opposite end of that, I love to go deep in in my lore. So for me, I feel that I can't entirely run a successful campaign unless I have that kind of detail because um, some of the players I play with are the kind of players who go looking for that kind of history and whatnot. So um, I've sort of realized that like, okay, I have to have, you know, some history in case they dig it up. Um, Sometimes I do kind of adjust things as it goes along and i think my players know that and are accepting of that um but yeah for me i really do like to start from a sort of broad uh perspective and then dial in on like well this region of the world seems to be interesting to me so we'll start here that's 
that's really good advice because like the the story of what happened with me is that like i built a world and i figured out like here's the history of all these continents and i created a new pantheon and i figured out a bunch of of history that happened in the world and on the one hand i did dive in a little bit too deeply and get and get lost in all of that world building but the thing that i found was having done all of that it let me feel more comfortable coming up with stuff on the fly like if they were uh in a in a tomb for example i knew what kinds of things would be on the walls based on is this a dwarven tomb is this an uh an elfish tomb is this a human tomb like you know the dwarves would uh basically lie about how good and awesome this person was in 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 life and so you know it would show somebody who was a baker on their tomb it would show them killing hundreds of goblins and the players learn to understand that like yeah the dwarves maybe not entirely trustworthy all the time because they like to play up their own legend uh so that kind of stuff it did help me when i was running the campaign but i also feel like maybe it's stuff i could have come up with without having put in too much work yeah i i think it's um it's a difficult balance to do that kind of stuff. Like you said, I feel a great sense of relief sometimes when, you know, a player, like they go into a tomb or a abandoned temple and I can be like, okay, I have history to pull from, even if it wasn't exactly the history I planned, or maybe I didn't plan any specific history for that temple. Um, but it, there can be, uh, a level of like, all right, you're now way too over-prepared. Um, I have done that as well. Um, and it can be frustrating sometimes. Uh, but I, I guess I just like having all the answers if it needs to come up. Yeah, I think what I've I've started to find for myself is like when it comes to handing out treasure or or things that the players get when they've defeated, you know, Maybe it's just a, a regular, ordinary encounter that they've had of like some goblins in in a in a old tomb or something, and and what do they have on them? And I'll just because when I was playing around a table, I'd have uh, props basically that I would give to the players as part of what they found on a on a on a goblin or in a treasure chest. Not all the time, but maybe once every couple of sessions, they'd find something weird, and if they decided to ask about it, then I would then figure out what what the significance was but if they just took the thing and then next time they were in town they they sold it to you know oh this looks like the local priest might be interested in this i'm gonna go sell it to him if they did that then i didn't have to care so so, sometimes i think like it can be useful to know uh to have a little bit more world building already done and set up so that you feel a little bit more confident in being able to answer questions like Maybe a player is really curious about, you know, why are goblins in this area and why do we all hate them so much? And maybe you've already figured that out or you have enough world history uh, sorted out that you can easily answer that. But sometimes your players are just going to be like, okay, there's some ancient historical feud. Cool. We're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, 
that is a good point. And oh, I I love props so much. And it's one of the things I miss the most about playing um, in a local table game, because most pretty much all the games I run are online. Um, and you can still do props there, but nothing quite so satisfying as like passing a scroll um, or like a piece of parchment over to a player that's got some you know, ancient riddle on it or like a letter from a loved one. Um, that is, oh, I miss that so much. Yeah, it is. It is super great. So this is, this is, this entire in kind of bit of conversation has been a bit fascinating to me because I've been thinking a lot. I've been reflecting a lot on my first campaign and I did very little actual world building thinking back. I built a Pantheon and that was the main thing I built. And I built the, like the school and the town surrounding it. And I say I, I mean me and Ray, because he was initially co-DMing with me. But I spent, uh, kind of what I was taught, actually, by some of the other people I played with was a lot of the time it's fine not to have a lot of the bigger details because you can you can make them up or decide on them or think about them for later. Um, so I'm torn because I, I think for me it worked pretty well and it continues to work pretty well. But on the other hand, it would be useful to like know things about a kingdom and who's ruling it and what they're like and what people think about them as opposed to just being like, yeah, it's not important. I'll think about it later. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. And that's sort of part of the balancing act that I, I manage. Because, um, you know, I, I like to structure out some things, but I, I also want my players to know that like, if you want to create a town in this kingdom, go right ahead. Like if you want to say, oh, I'm from this town, it's in this kingdom, and this is the kind of town it was, I'd be like, okay, I will I will incorporate that into the kingdom. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a, if you over-prepare, it can really make your players feel less like, they're a part of this world and more that they were just sort of dropped into it, um, which I do my best to avoid as much as possible. Something else that uh, I just thought of is that um, if you start off a campaign and you haven't done much world building and you're kind of just throwing stuff out there and then you find out later, like you figure something out later that contradicts some of what you said, that is also fine because I mean, think about the real world. Historians have fights over what happened in ancient history. They have, you know, fights that happen all the time. There's academics who won't talk to each other because they think that, you know, Professor So-and-so is an idiot because of his interpretation of some ancient text. So, you know, if you come up with something later on that contradicts something you said earlier because you figured out a better way or a more cool way to have a, a world event happen... That is totally fine, and your players being confused might actually be useful. Yeah, and exactly. Also, and also, often they won't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the things about world building is sometimes, like, I've had players that have taken the world building I've put in front of them, and they drank it all down, and they remembered all sorts of bits and pieces, but there are players that you could put a you know, seven course meal of world building in front of them. And they'll just be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go over to the snack bar now and just have a, <laughs> a fight with these guys over here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely true. Um, but I like that idea of um, 
being okay to accept the contradictions and sort of making it a part of history. For some people, that could make them more interested in paying attention to what you've got going on. If it's like, well, this is, um, you know, a debated part of history and no one's exactly sure what the truth is. They can be like, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll find out what the truth is. Yeah, I mean, you're playing a fantasy game. There's always a chance that they're going to find some weird magical artifact that lets them see into the past and find out what actually happened or actually go back and change those events. So there's always opportunities for the players to help you write that backstory of your, the world building of, you know, the campaign they're playing. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. My, uh, part of my approach lately has become to get the players to describe as many things as I can get them to describe. <laughs> it cuts down on so much work. That's a good approach though. It is. And it gets them invested, right? If they, if players get to decide part of what the world is like, in sometimes really significant ways, it does make them care more about the world they're playing in. For sure. You know, with, with, within reason. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's always, I mean, you're the GM, so you get to say, okay, this, you know, 60% of what you said is definitely true. And the other 40% is not stuff I can use. <laughs> well, Casey, thank you so much for talking to us. And I realized partway through our conversation that we didn't ask you how you originally came to playing tabletop games. So before we ask you our actual final question, why don't you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, so I started playing tabletop um, way back, you know, way back when. Um <laughs> in high school actually it was in uh grade eight um and i i can't exactly remember how my friend group had sort of figured it out but we kind of created our own little D &D third edition homebrew um you know basically just using the rule of cool uh to create our story and that was sort of the introduction for me and I was like man I really really love this and I sort of played a little while as a player and then I was like I think I want to tell my own stories for my friends to play in and that was um I think late in high school maybe grade 11 or so um and then that's when I took up the mantle of DMing and I have been doing it uh, ever since. And I, I freaking love it. Awesome. So, uh, oh, Sean, please. Oh, well, I was going to say you asked that question. So I'll ask, but you traditionally asked the final question. So go ahead. Hey, we don't have to go by tradition here. You get to ask the final question this time. <laughs> okay. So if you were able to go back in time uh, to when you first started DMing, what's a piece of advice uh, you'd give yourself about something that we've been talking about today? Oh, geez, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I would say trust your players. Um, that was something I had to learn, you know, uh, on my own and sort of, yeah, just trust your players and know that they've got your back just as much as you've got them, like theirs. And... You know, you want to see them succeed, but be okay with be okay with them failing if that's if that's how it all shakes out. 
Okay, that's good advice. Yeah, you know, that's good advice that, you know, we've been recording this. We've recorded like 76 episodes now, and I think that's the first time anybody's actually said to trust your players as advice. And I think that's a really important piece because I think jokingly among DMs, sometimes uh, we say things that are kind of shitty about our players. Um, and I think it's it's good to remember that, yeah, your your players will help you most of the time like if they're your friends that's you know it's what you do for each other definitely yeah um and i mean i think it's advice a lot of you know dms already know maybe deep down but maybe it's something they've had to learn over time um because yeah we're we're all in this game together very much so uh before we get out of here is there anything that you'd like to plug um or where can people find you online if they have other questions uh yeah um you can find me online i'm on twitter that's it that's my only social media um at uh casey widows uh k c widows uh w-i-d-d-o-e-s um also i guess the only thing i really want to plug is um uh black hole entertainment uh the company i sort of um am launching with they are launching april 8th and alongside myself there's a bunch of other talented incredible writers who are working on short stories some of which i haven't read yet but sound amazing and i really really hope you will give them a look uh on the 8th and uh where can people find black hole entertainment um, they are also on Twitter. It is at um, BH Entertainment, I believe. Let me just double check. Uh, uh, sorry, at BHCENT. That is Black Hole, Black Hole Comics and Entertainment. Very good. Okay. Uh, looking forward to their launch. Yeah, thank you very much. You're very thank welcome. you so much for, for coming on. It's been a blast talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a delight. And, um, you know, I just want to say I love y'all's podcast. Um, It's a joy to listen to other DMs talk about their process and, you know, things that they're passionate about. So I'm really, really happy that you all started this and that, yeah, just thank you for having me. Thank you so much, man. That's great. Thanks a lot, Casey. No no problem. uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at haleyboros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at acompetech.com. Revolver is the new weekly show on the Cave Goblin Network, exclusive to Patreon backers of just $1 or more. 
Each series lasts for a maximum of 12 episodes, then switches hosts and premises. Series 2 is Tabletop Tales, hosted by me, Jesse Boros, where I interview people about memorable stories from their tabletop gaming sessions. Hear the adventures at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.